Hello to you and welcome to the Doula's Podcast. So today we have brought in Andrew Pitkarn. Hello. How are you doing, Andrew? Yeah, all good, thanks. Thanks you for coming in. Do you want to give us a little bio about yourself, who you are, what you're doing, what you've done? Um, did my apprenticeship in London, five-year apprenticeship. Then I worked in Hatton Garden, which was the engine house of the jewellery trade in London um, for 30-odd years. Then came out here because the lifestyle was amazing. And, you know, yeah. jewellery, you know, was a second place, really. The life is amazing here. So that's why I came out. Um, we've also got Neil Polar. Back again. Back again. How you doing? I'm same as always. So we're kind of three generations of jewellers. So are you suggesting that I'm a different generation to you? <laughs> yes. And I'm the old part. So are you calling us old men? Uh, yeah. I'm the old man. Well, <laughs> older than me, yes. yes. Master. <laughs> 43 years making jewellery. Wow. Started when I was 17. Sure. Yeah. So you're not bad at it then, eh? I'm all right. I'm still learning. <laughs> still learning. You never stop learning. No, no. So master. Yes. It's, it's a debated term. Well, in the UK, your peers call you... A master when they recognise that you've learnt enough, learnt, not learnt enough, but got the skills to prove that you're a suitable standard. Yeah. So it's it's not, you don't call yourself, it's, it's like when you're a member of the Guild of Silversmiths and whatever it is, Goldsmiths and what have you. Yeah. We have a similar thing in the UK, but you're invited to join and you are recognised for your skills. Oh, yeah. So, so, you, so you come in at different levels? So well, you're like, certif- like certified master? I, I was invited to join and I've been doing it for about 25 years, 30. And one of the members said you should put your, you know, you should apply or go and, and you have a panel of guys yeah. who interview you. They assess your work, ask you who you've worked for. You have to take a piece up and you discuss the making process. Yeah, yeah. And it's very, it's on skill. It's, you know, unfortunately, Australia hasn't got the population. Therefore, you don't have the population of craftsmen. Yeah. And the trade here, you need the members because of the financial costs of running it. Whereas we're fortunate. We've got that many jewellers here. You're invited to join and... You have to be of a certain standard and the experience. You can't just have come out of your apprenticeship and straight away you're a, you're a member. You have to prove yeah. you've had that bit of life experience in making jewellery. And you certainly have those figures at the uh, at the guild. Yes, there, there are some. Yeah, there are very uh, talented people. Yeah, but it's it's just tougher in the UK. And I I was a, a fellow, not just a member. Um, and then I got on the board of interviewing people as to them to become members of the Institute of Professional Goldsmiths. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, and I did that for about four or five years, interviewing people, see what they had, talking to them about their working processes and their skills and how they make pieces and stuff like that. So it's it's quite intense. Sure. And where, where do you think you sit, Neil? Um, are, are you an aspiring I, I... master? Well, I'm on an offenders register. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, we'll, I think we'll leave that one alone. Um, 
Look, I I would not describe myself as a master jeweler. Uh, uh, I You're think pretty good though. If yeah, you, is, you, you could good. you could work towards something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I I could. I I don't know if that is what my goal ever was. And it's certainly not my current goal. Um, I, I definitely think that for for a lot of people within the industry, that that it's a great goal to have. Um, I think for myself, while I've always pushed myself to learn new skills and to do things better, the ultimate aim has always been to do so for the financial gain. Sure. Um, as it's opposed all about the Benjamins. To, yeah. As opposed to uh I, I I would feel like a fraud if I was to to join a a guild that teaches and, and preaches, you know, perfection when I'm knowingly taking those shortcuts to make something fit in the budget or to yeah. That's, that's part of being a jeweller, though. Yeah, you, you, you get yeah, that sometimes. I get that. But it's, you see, I'm a sad bugger. I've got a passion. I haven't got a job. So I work, you know, 365 of the days of the year, and I'm as happy as Larry. So I'm very lucky. Yeah. I haven't got a job. So I, I would say that I would probably be passionate about maybe one in every five or ten jobs that I take on. Uh, so I guess that's where the difference lies. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I, I would describe myself as a retail manufacturing jeweler yeah, or yeah. a wholesale manufacturing jeweler now that I no longer have the, the, the retail premises, but I, I would not, um, try and pass myself off as a master. But that's true in so many industries is you do some things for the money and you do some things for the passion. Yeah. And your industry should recognize you for it. Now, Neil's got great skills, so he's, Doing himself down a bit, you know, <laughs> yeah. seriously. No, I, really, I'm, I'm, um, I'm just being completely brutally honest. Yeah, uh, no, you, you have. So, self assessment. Nice self assessment is a very important tool. You're right. And um, you're riding in the wave. Yeah. You're not thinking about. Maybe I had too many serapacks before I came in, but um, no, I, I really, um, I, I think that there is. There definitely is a place within the industry for each one of us. Uh, every one of us that's working in the industry, we have our own our own level, our own tier, whether we realise it or not, whether we yeah. agree with wit. Your we, own audience. Yeah. Your own and customers. Yeah, we have our own strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. And, um, and, I, I, and I'm not saying that I couldn't be a, a master jeweler like yourself, Andrew, if I wanted to be. Uh, but, you know, my, you know I, I fell into jewellery from the watch side of things and uh, then you're more of a watchmaker master watchmaker than you are a yeah i would jeweler. i would actually you know I, I wouldn't hesitate to describe myself as a master watchmaker yeah um you know i i certainly i know i have those skills there and i exercise those skills yeah there's definitely um do i do that every day no um do i have the the passion about it again, maybe one <laughs> one nice job rolls along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Get that. So, in a parody of School of Rock, when Jack Black finds out the kids are liking Christina Aguilera, <laughs> can I say that? Did I say that correctly? Who knows? No. And Puff Daddy, uh, who do you put up there as like essential learning for? Jeweler appreciation. Would old like, men like us know who 
know about School of Rock? <laughs> who, who's Christina Aguilera? Is that a thing, though? Are there individuals in the past who have become icons and aspiration, um, you know, that kind of thing? Unfortunately, I know more in London, um, some of the really top craftsmen, and you try and learn from them, very osmosis and... Yeah. They're very free in their information. You know, in, in going back to my background, five-year apprenticeship in London as a diamond mounter. It's not a jeweller because yeah. there's so many facets within the industry yeah. and they're all specialised in London, whereas here a jeweller does everything. Yeah, some people do it badly, some do it really well. Um, but we have our, uh, like a, a mounter would never do setting work. There's no crossover in London. You're either oh. a mount, diamond mounter or a setter. What's the difference between a diamond mounter and a setter then? They sound like the same thing um, to me. Well, uh, the diamond, novice. Diamond <laughs> mount, a diamond mounter is the blacksmith. He does all the metal work. Oh, yeah. Right, he make, makes the rings or make the necklaces or whatever. And a setter just puts the stones in. Okay. Right, whereas here, I, I wouldn't be classed as a jeweller here in the UK because a jeweller is a retailer who sells jewellery. Yeah and does watch batteries and might do the odd repair. Whereas we're diamond matters, we're a bit more specialised and, and you know, it's. So, and I, I hate that term jeweller because what does it, what is it, it's not. <laughs> it's hotly debated. It is a very generic term. Yeah. And, and but everyone's, oh, you're a jeweller. Well, I'm, no, I'm not a jeweller. I'm, I'm a, uh, more of a goldsmith. I say goldsmith because it's a nice point of difference. Yeah. And it just makes me. Yeah. Goldsmith is a good term for it. Yeah, and there's a real spectrum, isn't there? Yeah. People putting bead on elastic. Yeah, but it's... Or a jeweller uh, of some kind. Yeah, but a jeweller co covers such a wide variety of things and you couldn't say that in the UK and it, going back to your training. For example, when I did my five-year apprenticeship, my governor said, you've got to go and find a job because from coming out of your apprenticeship, you're then a journeyman and oh, you yeah. then work your way around all the workshops learning other skills so you journey around so you'd be go to four or five different workshops that sounds beautiful sounds like a great time yeah and you're learning by osmosis and watching and making yeah. stuff so your knowledge is expanding yeah sure that would be too difficult over here i would imagine yeah it, it is unfortunately but then so you're 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 from being an apprentice you're a journeyman you're not a master you're not you're Still a diamond mounter or a diamond setter or a polisher. You see, you had jewellery polishers and you had platinum polishers. Yeah. And so it's broken down quite quite a lot in the UK. Sure. And, and then the trade decides, sees what you produce, and they recognise that, yes, you've achieved that level to call yourself a master yeah. jeweller. Whereas there was a gentleman here who just come out of college and he was in some tool place and he said yeah I'm a master jeweler and I'm thinking you know I, I kept my mouth shut but I just said no you're not you know you haven't learned anything actually I, I would say that um, if you feel the need to introduce yourself to other people in the trade as a master jeweler you're probably not uh, yeah. I, I can understand using that terminology in your marketing 
you know, on your business card, on your website, whatever. But uh, if you feel the need to introduce yourself yeah. to somebody else as a master jeweler, then perhaps your ego is a little bit larger than what your is skill that, set is. Is that classic? You know, the the people you know the most are the ones that say they know the least. Sort of. Yeah, yeah, there's quite a few people in our industry who are great experts. Why aren't I rich then? <laughs> well, like me, yeah. but I've got a passion. That's why yeah. I'm not rich, you know. But it, it's frustrating that they've got that arrogance that you know. Yeah, I know it. Well, I'm still learning, and I'm, you know, I say, yeah, I'm still learning. So I'm not. I don't know it all. I never will do. Yeah, there's no matter what you do, but specifically in this trade, there is never going to be a day where there is not something else to learn. Yeah. So being a mounter was something you capitalised on with your romance? Yeah, because I originally, back in the 80s, before CAD, I would make the masters for this stuff. Yeah. So you'd have exactly the same style, but all different size stones from, say, from a 50-pointer up to two-carat single stone, and you'd have to make exactly the same thing, but all different sizes. Now, it's not as easy as it sounds because metals, different thicknesses, will shrink at different rates. So when you're making your master, and I can't tell you how I do it, it's just experience of it, come back, no, it's not right, do it again. And and then you learn those slight nuances that you make the wire for a wire collet, it might be a tenth of a millimetre thicker because you know it's going to shrink that much more compared to the other mass of metal around This is when it. you're casting it. Yeah, this yeah. is when you're making the master to make the, the mould. That so, reduction. Yeah. 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 So tell me, you, you would make your masters in sterling? Yep. Uh, and then you would rubber mould it, yep. do a lost wax casting, that comes back, you then compare it to the rest of the settings in the range, make sure that it... Yeah, that the, the tolerances are great because you have to allow perhaps a tenth of a millimetre for cleaning up and shrinkage and stuff like that. So you, you make your finger size might be an M, M, uh, N or N and a half because it'll come down to an M, which is the stock size. And they're all little nuances that when collets and baskets and stuff like that, the finer the wire, it shrinks more, so you have to make it a fraction bigger. Yeah. And also, But I can't tell you, because it's just, I did that much of it, that you just intuitive, you know how big to make this stuff to shrink down to... Yeah. Be the right size. So you, you were the one that was putting in all the hard yards so that the retail jewellers like my, myself <laughs> could save themselves all those hours of mucking around. Well, so. well, you, you were quite a prolific Euromounts customer. I was, I was a prolific <laughs> client of yours. Yes, you were, yeah. And it was, it's great to chat and we talked about, you know, products and ideas and yeah. people come in and say they've got this problem. I say try and think outside the box a bit more yeah. and think about doing it this way or that way. That's what I was going to talk about because uh, whereas I've looked to Neil for assistance with things I'm doing, like, you know, some things you, you, you can't find out any other way apart from asking somebody who knows. And um, and I, the first time I met you at Euromounts, Neil was like, showed you something and you had a sort of under your breath, like, oh, you should do it like this. So like, just like, it was a 10 second uh, chat that you had, but it was just an invaluable piece of information being like, so there was a, there was a, a little bit of chat between two of you and you can. But that's how it should be. It. Yep. And this is this is one of the things that I, I, I always appreciated about um, the business that Andrew and Cheryl were, were running is is that 
you could always run through the idea of using that individual casting for that individual purpose with another jeweler or tradesman. Um, you know, if you're giving a brief to a CAD designer and they are a CAD designer first yeah. and they have, you know, picked up the designing jewellery side of things, they're not going to necessarily understand the nuances of the metal, how the metal will yeah. behave uh, both in wear and tear and in setting and in joining and, and in binding it up to solder it and in polishing it. They're, they're not going to know what your losses are going to be. They're not going to know if there's yeah. going to be specific equipment required or even if you're going to get to the end of it and the whole thing's going to be a, a big failure. And it's a really complicated uh, equation to make. Like I, I, I did CAD and, and trying to find a, a definitive answer on yep. how these things are going to act, you know, come on, just tell me, is it 0.8% or <laughs> see, <laughs> what is it? See, the problem is on a CAD, you've got this great big image of this collet or this ring and you think, oh, it's too big. But you don't realise when it's all reduced down to its, yeah, its yeah. size. And that's a lot of people make that problem of making, oh, the claws look too heavy. Well, it's all going to shrink a bit. Yeah. yeah. And, you, and you see a 0.8 claw and it's bloody two or three centimetres big on the screen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they just don't get that transformation from the screen to the real piece, how much smaller it is. And I, I guess if, you, if you're thinking of it from a, from a hand manufacturing perspective... You can always file it down and cut it back. Sure. Uh, it's easy to take away. A lot away, of the time yeah. when, when people are CAD designing, they they want that that file that is designed, they want it to be the finished product. Um, yeah. And they don't allow for the shrinkage. They don't allow sometimes you should make that piece in three or four pieces, not just one. Yeah. Because you've got to clean it up and you don't want to see the cuttlefish lines or the printing lines. Mm -hmm. And it takes so long to clean them out. They don't think about the process it, from getting a casting to a yeah. finished piece, cleaning it up. And sometimes three or four pieces is the quickest way than just having one and wasting your time. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to clean it up, and you clean it up really badly, and it's it looks like a dog's dinner. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of the CAD designers, if they studied or or sat next to a jeweler, they could get the processes involved and CAD the jewellery, and it would be easier, more cost effective, because you're spending less time. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think is a cardinal sin over here: the the guys that print the waxes or the what have you, you can slow them down. Right, and if you slow them down, if you halve the the time it took so that they print the stuff here, you would save yourself so much time in cleaning up. Oh yeah. So the clarity of the print is yeah. much higher. So you slow the actual printer down. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we we've printed collets, and they're as smooth as a baby's bum. But you take twenty four hours to print this one little five millimeter. Yeah. Collet. But it is so smooth, you don't even have to clean it up. You could put it on a mop. But here, it's all about speed, and and they don't get it. If you could, um, you, I'd quite happily pay twice the price because I know I'm going to spend less of the time, so though, therefore it's more cost-effective for me yep, yep. To, to pay twice the price to get it printed, and I'm spending less time, less wastage as well. Because yeah. the minute you start cleaning things up, you're you're losing the shape, you're filing flats on the round wires and stuff like that. So, you know, it's it's more cost effective. 
as much as it's going to cost. I'd happily pay twice as much. That's the interesting thing about jewellery, being a jeweller, I find, is that you there is sort of these cravats where you can get to A to B, you can print something and it will do the job. But if you know, with someone with more experience, we'll tell you, you know, slow it down. Or like, yeah. There's all these little learning curves in there's between less wastage on A it, to you know, A to B. There's less wastage, so it's so much easier. But they just... The, the the casters here, they just want to get it out as quickly as possible. So, And that's a great shame. And if they did listen to us, the amount of times I said, can you print it slower? Yes. Will they? No, because I might be the only idiot yeah, who yeah, wants yeah. it a slow printing done. Yeah. And they've got this size of whatever to print it on. There's, there's a spectrum of, of, of uh, casting houses as well. You know, some Definitely. people do push it out quick and their, their customers so want it quickly. It's all about money and speed. The, the more they can put on this one printing pattern, the more they, you are, they you, make. I, I do agree with you there, but to some extent, but I, I do think that there are a couple of casting houses whose, um, you know, attention to detail and attention to what the client wants is pretty good. And if you do ask them yeah. that... Um, and they cost you a little bit more. Yeah. And that's a, yeah. So um, what sort of uh, materials are your faves to work with? Platinum. Platinum. I love it. It seems to be a common jeweller's favourite platinum. Yeah. What, what sort of alloy do you prefer? I use 97. 97, okay. yes. It's. I like the colour. I like. I don't like the ruthenium or whatever weird yep. and fancy metals. Okay. Um, it's user friendly. You can get away with melting up your filings and you drawing it down for why. You don't have any issues with cracking or stuff like that. But it's having the right equipment to work with platinum. Like you've got to have proper platinum platinum crucibles because mm-hmm. you buy the cheap ones. The the chemicals out of the cheap ones will leach into the platinum. And the platinum's shot to bits. You yep. cannot work it. Yep. So you can't cut corners on basics like that. And yep. some people do, and they wonder why their platinum's not getting... They ain't getting the best use out of their platinum. Yep. So what's, what's the alloy of platinum? I use copper. So Yeah, so it's just platinum and copper. Yeah. And what does that little bit of copper do? It hardens it up a little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it, the colour's great, and it's, it's a bit more stickier when you polish it. But again... You can't rely on a mop to polish platinum. You have to finish it. You've got to go through the papers first. You've got to go to a 5,000 grit. And it's like soldering. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought I was uh, going to 3,000. 3,000 is great. It's good. Yeah. You're nearly there. But it's... it's <laughs> nearly. <laughs> have another go. <laughs> but it's also, it's like I use a stainless steel polish that 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 is developed for stainless steel because mm-hmm. stainless steel is sticky, so it's that same sticky as platinum. Is that that whitey-grey sort of...? I use Bonax or Hyphen, and it's produced by a British company called Cannings, and mm-hmm. and it cuts, it doesn't drag, and therein lies the secret. I, I was for a long time using a very large bar of a white or grey um, stainless steel Yeah, that would be compound. Hyphen. Yeah, which yeah. was... Absolutely great. And yeah. then when I went to replace it at that particular time, I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, currently, I'm using Luxor yeah, yeah, green Luxor. Yeah, polish. Yeah. Um, and I, I find that that's probably my favourite out of what I've currently got. I've, I've got all of the Dialux polishes there and a couple of other things. But I actually find when, when it's green versus green, uh, the, the green Dialux will do the job well, but I find that the, the, the green Luxor is 
that much more efficient on platinum. Yeah, perhaps it cuts those supposed to drags. Yeah, I um, just on the weekend I finished off a uh, a set of platinum wedders, a platinum and wedding and engagement ring set, and at the same time was a, a large heavy gents palladium wedder, and. Um, I actually I only went down to I, I only went down to twelve hundred grit in the emery, and polished from there with the the green Luxor, and I've got a really nice smooth mirror finish on them, so it's definitely got a, a, a cut to it. Um, yeah. I was very happy with it. Uh, they're, they're your go-to um, for most, aren't they? You you like the green and the red? I like the green for everything. The green and the red is is no, is pretty. I, I don't fail, like the red. So? Oh, you do don't not, like the red? I do not like rouge. <laughs> uh, You're shaking your head as well. Rouge is good for gold, but I don't use it because I've got my own product. I oh, stuff yeah. that I use for platinum that I've. And again, I would say I, I very very rarely use rouge on gold even uh, I will go straight to the uh, just to the green and uh, if, if, if you've got the right mops and the right technique of, of knowing how hard to push or or how soft to push and what angle to take things from you're going to get a great finish on it anyway yep, yep. Uh, often I'll find that um, now, some people will say it's probably my technique or that my mops aren't clean enough or whatever, but often I'll find that if I go back and go over something with rouge afterwards that I actually introduce fine scratches into it. Um, now, I've, I've had people tell me, oh, your mops are dirty. Yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. tried washing them. I've tried using brand new ones. So uh, I, I find that the only thing that rouge is good for is getting your walls dirty. <laughs> Yeah, and your face. And your face. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Well, no. What, what about Tripoli? That's that's the sort of that's that's, that's the college again, given. Again, Tripoli. Tripoli. Tripoli's I place, but it. Yeah. I personally, <laughs> personally, the, the the only times that I use Tripoli is when I'm working on watches or clocks, and I'm polishing brass or or, or plexiglass. Yep. Right. Uh, it's a bit too rough. Yeah. I I don't use it on jewelry. On, I don't use it on precious metals. Put it that way. Oh. Um, it'll round edges. Yeah. It'll round short, sharp. So, edges. Do, you, do you start like when you were an apprentice? Were you like you got your whoever was teaching you like you got to use triply? You got to use this. No, one no, we didn't. No? We had a polisher. Yeah, we had two. I was in a workshop of sixteen men. Oh yeah. And we had two polishers. We had one setter and sixteen men kept one setter and two polishers. So busy. Andrew would finish his job and then it would get passed on to. The polisher who Henry Ford style. It. Yeah, yeah. But and if it wasn't good, the boss would put a hammer on it and say, start again. Oh, right. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like six wall collets. I made hundreds of them. And my governor knew I hated them. And hmm. if it wasn't perfect, Your governor, you're so London, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> yeah, he'd put a governor. hammer on it and he'd, he'd know how to wind me up. And I'd make, I'd make hundreds of them, hundreds and I hated him for it, but now I appreciate it because yeah, yeah. I can knock up a Tiffany-style six-claw collet in 45 minutes, start to finish. Yeah. I can do a whole Tiffany ring in three hours, and some people take a day, and I can knock two and a half up in a I day. Think, I think we, we all know a couple of people that would take more than a day. What's, what's your PB? 
What's my personal best? Yeah. Uh, look, I would say that for me, 99.9% of the time, if I was going to do a Tiffany Six Claw, I would do it as a casting. Yeah, sure. Um, oh, oh, you're getting the, the I'm shaking getting the head heads. shake. But, the, I mean, but then this, I've made thousands of them. Yeah, so. yeah but right. This is, this is what I was getting at before, that for my particular circumstances yeah, right. uh, and my clientele, I've always found that uh, it's always come down to the money. It's, yeah, yeah, it's of very, very rare that I would have a client be prepared to pay me for a half day or a full day of labour on making a Tiffany six claw ring. Yeah, yeah. I mean that the, the reality is is that that actually takes the pricing on it into Tiffany territory yeah. or past yeah. Tiffany territory. See, I can do mine quickest is two and a half hours, start to finish from four and a half mil square but bar, complete finished ring. It's good to hear that as well because, like, when you're a newbie, you're like. Oh, it takes me this long, but I'll only charge for half that amount because if I was good at it, then I'd be able to do it quicker. And then, do you know what I mean? So, like, the problem it's with good that is that you fall into the trap of other people doing take that for the rest of your time. life. Yeah. But then people say, well, yeah, it's taken you that long to do, but it's in fact, it's taken me 43 years yeah, to exactly. learn how to teach myself to make it that quickly. Yeah. yeah. So put a price on that, you yep. know, and I'm not going to give away three and a half, two and a half or three hours cheaply because yep. it's there's 43 years behind it, you know, and that experience of working with platinum and, you know, yep. and so great they're going to think they're going to pay $80 an hour for whatever it is, two and a half hours to, lovely, they're rubbing their hands. Well, they ain't going to get it from that. Yep. Yep. So going back to the masters of jewellery, um, on your website, Andrew, you say that you're a big fan of Fabergé. There's a lot to learn from it, but people think he made it himself. But he had a workforce of 300 people. Oh, yeah. So it was a massive workforce. And you're like an egg might take a year to make, but you could have 100 people making yeah. it. And you would have a master. If you see the old pictures of the Fabergé workshop, you would have eight or ten people around a Round a bench, and they'd all have their, and they'd all have their places. You know, to have one master, and then it would pecking order work work down, and they'd all be working on different pieces of it. And the master would oversee it and and make sure that um, it was all up to standard. And he he was the conductor; he would haul it all together. So it was great. But if you had three hundred people working on an egg, you're going to achieve that quality of work and. And don't forget, it was the Industrial Revolution era. Yep. So they had fly presses and all the little reefs and stuff like that. They were just stamped out. They weren't done by hand. And there's a lot of sure. there's a lot of things that you see. And I can say, yeah, I can say, yeah, well, they've stamped those out because you couldn't produce that much of it with that same detail. The skill was in the yeah. die cutters who would cut the dies for this stuff to be stamped out. That's another interesting point because you look at things from the past and you think, how did they do that? Yeah. But they 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 were probably doing those those uh, industrial revolution type tricks well, to I, get it out quickly. And I think something that uh, a lot of jewelers in uh, Australia have recently stumbled on, as in the last couple of years, is, is things like like die cut um, or, or pressed or stamped. Uh, items and but that's uh, another skill that's dying. Unfortunately, it is. It is. But what you we know? have seen recently is I have seen a, a, a number of posts recently on um, Facebook groups of 
of um, some jewellers out there who are really good jewellers um, who are buying up old fly presses and experimenting with making new dyes. And uh, I, I think that uh, perhaps that is going to be you know, part of a renaissance for, for some of those techniques. Yeah. Because um, comparing it to casting in terms of durability... Yep. I... I um, as a point, uh, prior to when I started dealing with Andrew at Euromounts, I used to get a lot of components from Precision, uh, and the vast bulk of their items were either machined or stamped or pressed. And um, the quality of something that's stamped or pressed, uh, when it's done so in a very thick material, is just beautiful. Uh, I find it too sterile. You find it too sterile? Yes. I mean, I, I've always used it as a starting point. Yeah. And in the same way as I would... You, you know, know what I mean by yeah, sterile? I, it's too sharp and it's... I, I get that, but no uh, for me, I like that as a starting point. I mean, this is the majority of what I would do with your castings from Euromounts. I would come and I would buy a plain rub over, rub over bezel and I'd take it back to my workshop and then I'd cut into it the details that I wanted, for example. Um, yeah, so like Yeah, exactly. Treat yeah. it all as a yeah, blank. Yeah. yeah. But it's like precision, great product. It's got its place. But it's it, their wastage was phenomenal. Absolutely. And that reflected in their charges. In their which prices. Is, yeah. A machine metal, the, the wastage could be 50 per 60% of what you... Yeah. Can know? you talk us through... That process, why there's so much wastage? Well, you would have a solid lump and they'd machine everything, the claws and all stampings and yep. stuff like that. Even butterflies, you'd have to start with a strip of metal, might be 0.3 mil of it, but it's got to be 5 or 6 mil wide or and the machine just bangs it out. So you've got all that, all those holes and all that metal got to be remelted and and remilled out again. So the wastage is quite phenomenal. I, I think that uh, we all know that uh, no matter how careful you are with your alloys and cleanliness and everything, that there is a, a, a finite limit to how many times that you can melt down and roll out and reuse that material. Yeah. And, and this is so, where I'd love for there to be an assay office in, in Australia. Because when I came here, because in the UK you're anal about quality of metal and cleanliness because... By law, everything has to be hallmarked and tested. Yeah. Here, there's nothing. See, in yeah. the UK, if you sell something that's over a gram in weight that hasn't got a hallmark in a jewelry as a piece of jewelry, you can be fined. I think it was forty thousand pounds. Yeah, Not, I saw that stopped you doing it. Yeah, but then it's also it all goes back to dear old Henry VIII. Believe it or not. Oh really? Yeah, because we had because the ass office kicked off in the twelfth or thirteen hundreds, believe it or not, yeah. and um, you'd have the weights and measures of say Sydney and the weights and measures of Newcastle, and this guy say his was accurate, and this guy and they'd fight over whose was worse, and they'd go to and back in the UK, Henry VIII had enough of it, so he said, right, we're going to harmonise everything, so he invented the customs. So he harmonised weights and measures, fluids oh, yeah. and stuff like that, and the assay office. So the whereupon everything had to be hallmarked and tested independently. 
So, and the knock-on effect of, like, the word Hallmark comes from, originally, the Goldsmiths Company was one of the livery companies in the square mile of the city, and their pecking order is number seven, I think. So you would go to the Goldsmiths Company, and it would be assayed by the assay office, which was run by the Goldsmiths Company. And being Goldsmiths Hall, and hence the name Hallmark, Okay, yeah. Right, and the thing that bugs me here is some jewellers say, yes, we put our hallmark in it. Well, it's not a hallmark. It's a carrot stamp that you're putting in there. It's a common control mark and your maker's mark. It is not a hallmark. A hallmark is issued by an assay office. It it then, everyone's anal about getting the hallmark. And in the UK, it fails 18 carat. It goes down to, they mark it to 14. Now, if it fails 9 carat, they'll destroy the piece. Okay. You won't get the piece back as a ring or what have you. It gets destroyed because you cannot sell it as a piece of jewellery. Do you get a lump of material back? Yeah. Oh, that's all right then. They just I mean, put has a hammer on it. ever happened to you? Like when you've no, because I, I, I this is, sounds snobby, but I used to do 18 carat or platinum, so they'd mark it down either as 14 oh, carat yeah. or, or platinum. They might say it's failed. They might well smash it platinum because there was only one standard of platinum. Yeah. Um, and but that's why we're so careful about the quality of stuff going to the ourselves being you, tested. Did you ever have a piece you submitted thinking it was eighteen that came back as fourteen or nine? Or I, I had one piece once that I thought I was taking a chance on, and I just remade it. Simple as that. Yeah. So it, it, you were told that it was would yeah. only qualify well, for fourteen. Well, or, they just marked it down as fourteen carat. Yeah. You pay your fees, and it, and it wasn't expensive. So you'll pay like uh, say. Back then, I'm talking about 14, 15, I'd pay £13 for a box and you can have four or five pieces all marked and tested. Then you'll pay 30 or 40p a piece on top of that per, if so, if you had a big box of pieces. Sure. And it would take an average of two days or three days average. If you wanted a piece open, they could do something overnight, so you'd drop it by three o'clock, you could pick it yeah. up nine o'clock. So it's not... It's not that it can't be done here. Yeah, and so that's what a lot of jewellers are worried about, the, the the cost, the lead time. Yeah, yeah because we're, all... uh, jewellers, by nature, are we're tight you know, doing things last minute, night before, to get it out yeah, for the customer. Yeah, but we had to we had to hallmark stuff, so it went in by 3 o'clock, you picked it up 9 o'clock. So that was a good service. Let, let me ask you, um, how did the system work for the uh, chain stores over there? They, they had to have everything hallmarked by the assay office. Yes, so foreign goods would have a foreign... Uh, the style of the hallmark would denote that it was a foreign imported piece. Yep. Now, about... I don't know how many... About four or five years, four years, five years, years ago, the assay office, the Goldsmiths Company got in contact with Brinks... And in their Bond warehouse at Heathrow Airport, they set up an assay office. So all products, so if you're buying from China or Bangkok or Timbuktu or wherever, it comes through there, they can test it, it's in Bond. So if it fails, you just send it back, you've got no import duties, no nothing. We're protected from the bullion suppliers who mix the metal. Now there's a case of Johnson Matthew mixed up a dodgy batch of... 18 karat gold and it. Oh, yeah. In, it, in Henry VIII's time? No, this Did he lose his head? I don't think the Johnson Matthew were around then. Oh, I don't know who, who they are, sorry. They're, they're bullion suppliers. Oh, right, and okay. uh, I believe it was, <laughs> it was in the 90s this happened. And so they passed out all these casting grains. It was about 10 kilos of casting grain they mixed up. 
and it was just a fraction under. And if it's not 18, if it's 17.9, it ain't going to pass the assay office. It's got to be 18 or above. Yeah. And so the caster's got it done, give it out, and then stuff would get sent off to the asset, and it would fail. So it'd go down to 14. And all of a sudden, the casters were getting their ear rolls bent, and then it all came back to JMs, and they made a mistake. As simple as that. It wasn't deliberate or anything. It just happened. So they took back all the gold, paid for the the, the labour charges, and you know they did the right thing by people. Very expensive so, mistake. Yeah, but mm. it, it, it's the gold isn't eighteen. It's eighteen point something to make sure it will pass the assay office, mm-hmm. and that's so, protection because, as I said, we get protected from the bullion dealers. The retailers get protected from the manufacturers, and the public get protected from the retailers and yeah. it's the best bit of consumer protection around so what about the suppliers over here what protection is there? yeah so you know there's just a goodwill yeah well you've got your name you know as i say to people come to me to make stuff if i know there's going to be a problem i don't want to make it because at the end of the day i'm on show and i don't want a bad press yeah and I've refused work because I know there's going to be issues. Yeah. Simple as that. I don't need the grief, and I don't want to give my customers a grief. Yeah, right. So it's yeah, principle. You've come 42 years, you don't want to be... That's right. <laughs> and, I, and I don't want the grief, and I don't need to be bad-mouthed or slagged off in the industry. Yeah. You know? It's as simple as that. And and Everyone else does the same. And my name's more important than a one job, to be honest. Yeah. Simple as that. And uh, so you... Uh, repaired the Millennium Diamonds. Well, do you want to have a chat about that? Because I watched the documentary. Is this the one with the, the diggers? With the in. digger? Yeah, yeah. Well, I knew uh, a colleague I used to do work for. He had quite a big in. Unfortunately, he's passed away, but he had a big in, a lovely gentleman, and he got on very well with De Beers and he'd work with them on projects and stuff like that. And um, heard about the robbery. Then he rocks up to my place. With this thing in his pocket. Oh, what? And I said, isn't that Millennium Diamond? <laughs> oh, my days. And, uh, isn't it, was... it funny how jewellers carry things from A to B? Oh, you'll, you'll be amazed at <laughs> value of stuff. So he came in. I said, isn't that the Millennium? He said, yeah, it got damaged a bit, the setting and what have you. Can I straighten it out and All stuff right. like so that? So what's the setting on the Millennium Diamond? It was it was suspended. It was like um, it was a bezel set with two top and bottom wires and it was so everyone could see it from who walked yeah. around it. Oh, I see, yeah. And, and so when the digger hit this, this, tried to smash it, it bent it a bit and stuff like that. And I, he said, oh, it's only as cubic. And I'm looking at it and I think, it doesn't have that purpley, you know, that purpley... doesn't have that rainbow. Yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking, but days before, the well, 2000 before mobile phones and all that crap with, photo, you know, cameras and stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, it looks doesn't look like a cubic to me. And that's the thing De Beers would do. Like, when they brought the Cohenel over to the UK to be cut and polished, right, Yeah. they made this big hoo-ha which ship it was going on and the detectives guarding it. Yeah, yeah. And they put the real one in the post. They sent it by post. Wow. So, you know... So this was the Cohenel... Yes, so the, di- the rough diamond before yeah. b- before it got cut and polished. They sent the rough diamond in the post. Yeah, right. That's and they had this dummy one, so it was... Because that's what it said in the documentary. So someone in De Beers has a 
massive set of bull- bollocks like coconuts <laughs> to put that in the post. Yeah. Well, back in whenever they found it, yeah, it's like documented that it was sent through the post. And that was another thing I was going to talk about, talking about big balls, is uh, how do you work on something like that? Does it, does it, do you just not think about it? Don't worry. Oh, yeah? I, I it is lu- what it is. I was, or care, no responsibility. Yeah, no, I was, <laughs> I was lucky. I got spoilt in London. I worked on some big stones, like I had a 26 character and, you know, it's another diamond, it's another potato. Yeah, right. I, I would be more, I'm more frightened of a, you know, five characters and we'd have a lot of big stones going through our place in London. You know, it's another, whereas if I had a five-character amethyst, I'd be petrified that I'd scratch it. You know, okay, you can chip a diamond and stuff like that, but some of the soft-coloured stones, you can, you you know, you leave it lying around on your bench or you put it, you know, falls in your skin and stuff like that. Yeah. I I must admit that I, I have chipped diamonds before. And I have damaged the odd coloured stone as well, but I think that the most grief I ever got was on an amatrine. Yes. It was quite a large amatrine and uh, wow. managed to put a, a, a chip on it near the girdle. And uh, client stone Oops. and had the stone recut, um, but it was never, ever the same. And she was not happy about it. Mm. Had it have been a diamond, uh, I wouldn't have even left a mark. Yeah. So yeah. You can well, chip diamonds easily, but you've got to be really unlucky. And back to my apprenticeship days, we, we so you guys have trays here. Yeah. I have a skin, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And as an apprentice, sure. yeah, yeah. the guy who I was under, if you ever caught me with a tool in my skin, or tools, sorry, I won't be, anyway... Um, He'd whack me on the elbow with a pied mallet. And believe me, you soon learn pretty quickly not to leave any tools in your skin because if anything fell into it, you ain't going to damage it. Okay. So what's the, what's the sort of like one, two, three scariest stones? <laughs> Just as a, as a bit of fun. Natural emeralds. Emeralds. Tantanites. Yeah. Tantanites. Tantanites. There's a lot of... Uh, can they, you know... The, they can't go in an ultrasonic. Well, um, it's the shock. You can put them, but you don't take them out of a warm or hot ultrasonic yeah. and then run cold water. Thermal shock it. is Thermal really... Thermal shock is the one that kills them. But having oh, yeah. said that, um, I think I've put pretty much every single tanzanite I've ever worked on in the ultrasonic and, and treated it the same as everything else. My Don't run it under cold water. <laughs> well, I, I never, never have. Yeah. Uh, I've... Yeah. I've got. Uh, I've always rinsed things under hot water from the uh, ultrasonic. That's just a little. Oh, yeah. Is that a good habit to get in? Yeah. Well, well that, that's just me. I, I think there was one point in time many years ago where the the tap, the mixer tap on the sink oh, yeah. in the workshop was broken, and it was only hot water coming through. And I noticed that it tended to give me cleaner results. So oh. that became a habit. Sure. Um, yeah, but thermal shock with yeah. emeralds or. Yeah, Tan's nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. And aquamarines possibly as well. There well, I, I guess so any so member So you'd rather of... work on the Millennium Diamond than... It wouldn't face me at all. A carrot, Amethyst emerald. or... Em- yeah, emeralds I'm all right. Yeah? Yeah, not too bad. I, I find that uh, any variety of the beryl family 
if it's a barrel. if it's a large and expensive stone, then you know it's really butt puckering stuff doing any work to the item that it's setting. Yeah. Um, yeah, diamonds unless they're heavily included, you know, P two, P three, don't really worry too much yeah. about yeah. them. Um, sapphires. Right. Um, not really an issue. I have been. But you caught love at, sapphires, so yeah, you you, you I have would, been you caught would out before. Take the right amount of care for it. Hey? Yeah, I have been caught out many years ago uh, with a sapphire on two occasions, once with thermal shock and once with an inclusion that wanted to expand uh, during retipping. Um, they don't like flux as yeah. well. Sapphires. Yeah. They don't like oh, flux. Really? That's something rubies, to remember. Never put flux on sapphires or rubies because okay. it will stick to the stone it, and get well, stuffed. Will actually melt the, the the surface of the stone and yeah. leave a, a sort of like a like a watermark on the surface and of the stone. It's got to be polished out. So oh, never right. put flux on. Yeah. On, yeah. Uh, sure. But, you know, apart from that, I, I think that... Uh, if you're careful, yeah. you know, diamonds are, you know... It's funny you. how is everyone loves working with platinum, with diamonds. They're the ones that don't get too much sweat on the brow. And they tend to be more expensive. I, I would think that platinum is a more forgiving metal to work in, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, I don't really I, I see what all the fuss is. No, I think I think the trouble is people try and cut the corners with working with platinum, and that's when it bites them on the arse. Oh, I'll I'll triple it up, and you mm. you you have a rounded yeah. blob instead of a nice crisp sharp ring. And that's if you get lazy with it, it's going to bite you on the arse. It's as simple as that. But if you do the hard yards with it, like go through the emery grades. Up to two thousand three, you're going to have a marvelous, stonkingly great ring. I, I think the funny thing is, is that um, you know where a lot of people in our industry work. You know, a, a lot of the time, a lot of what they're working on is say nine carat gold, which that's what they're used to, and they they often say that that's what they're happiest working in because that's what they're used to. I hate working oh, I hate in nine it. carat. <laughs> I hate it. And it's not a smell up my nose. Yeah, I'm a nine carat person, but that's because I can't afford it. Well, it's not a smell up my nose. I just, I <laughs> hate. I admire you for doing it because you know how to yeah. work the metal. I, I hate the, the characteristics yeah, of sure. it. To me, it's more like a brass. It, it behaves more like a brass. I, I hate fire scale, which you, know, you can get in nine carat. Uh, I, I hate. The fact that on a lot of it you'll get oxidisation, which means that your joins are a little bit harder to make flo- the solder flow, to make neat joins or, yeah. or it's strong joins. Um, I hate the graininess of some of it when you're, you're finishing it. I, I definitely hate the fact that there's so many different recipes for nine carat that you, you get two different batches from two different sources and they're both going to behave totally differently. And the colours different. different. The yeah. colours are different. Um, you know, it, it's not like, you know, if you're working in 18 yellow, the, well, yes, there are different recipes and, 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 and for the alloy, things like that. Your differences in how it behaves are not so massive. Uh, you know with a, f- a fair amount of confidence how that piece is going to, how, how that metal is going to behave as, yeah. as you're working on it. Um, you know, you are able to work intuitively on it from your previous experience. Uh, whereas nine carat is, is kind of like it's, uh, it's like the wild, wild west sometimes. It's, you're expecting this to happen, but it so, doesn't. 
And it's like rose gold sometimes. Yeah. A bit of a pick to work as well. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly in the lower carrots. Um, yeah. 18 rose. Not so bad, but it's not such a nice it's rosy colour though. Yeah. It, um, I often find with the 18 rows that I, I tend to... Um, it's I'll, getting that colour mix. Yeah. And it's a... It's and I, 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 tend to, I tend to lose a whole lot on, on filing and polishing on 18 rows because uh, I, I'm just... Um, I, it's a hard metal. Yeah. But it polishes great, but it's a hard metal to work. Yeah. All right. Now I'm going to end on a couple of questions. First of all, when we... Get guests on. We ask them what they do when they're at the bench. What are you listening to? What are your ears up to? Foo Fighters, Coldplay, Genesis. I saw on Facebook you went to the Foo Fighters concert the yep. other week. Yep. Very Led, nice. Led Zeppelin. Yep. Yep. Bit of rock. Yeah, Rimsky, Korsakoff, Beethoven, you know. Yeah. Adele, you name it. Yeah. Did you, you turn do it up? Uh, I'm not too loud because my son's got fed up with Genesis and because that's my. <laughs> How can you be fed up with Genesis? Uh, he, he is. Do you, do you find that you're, you're hammering things in, in time with Phil Collins? Oh, yeah, like that gorilla advert <laughs> with <laughs> the chocolate. Yeah. No, it's just uh, it's that was my era, and I was lucky enough to see him a few times, and that's my. Favorite group, but I like Coldplay. We saw them last year; they were out brilliant. So yeah, that's right. sort of I, mean, I hear they do a good live show. Oh, phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal! Yeah, Led Zeppelin, great, nice bit of heavy music. So yeah, and uh, as we're talking about being uh, mentors, masters, and things like that, if you could go back to the beginning, Neil, we'll start with you. Any advice to young Neil? Any advice to young Neil? <laughs> don't, don't come in the train. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that, well, I, I, I guess that, uh, that, you know, there's so many things that I advise myself that I probably couldn't. Uh, in industry terms, not like, um, no, you your personal life. Uh, no, I think that um, I, would I would have to advise myself to pay more attention from a younger age. Okay. I think really, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the jewellery industry and um, there's many, many things that I, I picked up in my childhood, but uh, many techniques that I picked up, uh, but the actual theory of things came much, much later. You know, now as a 40-year-old putting theory and technique together, things make so much more sense. Sure. And, and it makes it so much easier to apply to something else. And uh, by the way, it's Neil's 40th birthday this weekend. Well, this, this will be out on Wednesday, so it I'll, just I'll be have already, I'll have already passed. It. Yeah, so if, if you see Neil out in the ether... Give him a... Ether, alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm... I'm, I'm you know, ether. Well, it's well, a well. renaissance. We're, we're, uh, we're going to be sniffing ether. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Andrew, any advice to I'd just say young Andrew? Watch and look, because sometimes you think you see things, but you aren't really watching what's going on, you know? And the classic... I went to Waterford Crystal factory and oh, yeah. I was watching these guys sticking molten glass handles onto jugs and stuff. How hard can it be? 
And <laughs> and because I, I, I was perhaps the training of watching, you gradually see he stuck the glass when it was a certain colour red. And he wouldn't do it before then because then the glass was cooling down. It was still sticky. And it's just watching and listening to what you're being. And you have to watch. Sometimes you think you're looking at something. Yeah. And you don't see it. And it's like sometimes we all work on jobs and you think, there, no, that's fine. And you look at it the next day and it's a pile of dog's poo because you haven't really looked at it properly. You so, think you have. And it's that fine detail. And I think it's not yeah. that arrogance of, you know, we all make mistakes so let's learn from each other and, you know, yeah. Try improve our skills and, you know, watching and stuff like that. Yeah, right. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming down. Really Great. appreciate Great fun. Not a problem. Yeah, right. Hope you enjoyed it. Always um, Just like that rash. <laughs> It'll go away eventually. <laughs> no, we love having you here. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate yeah. that. Uh, we're on Instagram, Facebook, the usual means. Look up Andrew, have a look, see what yeah. he does. Master.goldsmith on Instagram. Yeah. Master.goldsmith. He's a master goldsmith. I think I follow you, I'll have to double check. Yeah, right. Haven't been on Insta for a while, so. Yeah, well, that's all, you know. It's all good fun. Every, every, learning, yeah. learning and sharing. There's a real good community out there, and they're all watching each other and supporting each other, so. That's great. If there's any way to strengthen that, then that would be brilliant. Cool. Fab. Take Don't care. look me up on Twitter. There's <laughs> no, some nasty I'm... stuff on there. Gosh. <laughs> and if you ever get invited to a private chat, just uh, deny. <laughs> 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 All right. Take care, bye.